You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 127. Canyon is, I think, the greatest um, frequency of mortalities, of fatalities in any national park. Heat stroke and dehydration, climbing accidents, lost backpackers, and suicides. So, do you factor that into, is there enough food out there in this area for condors in 1995 when it was a thought of releasing them out here? You know, you got deer on the Kaibab Plateau, you've got cattle in House Rock Valley, you've got Bighorn sheep in Marble Canyon, you got pronghorn out here on BLM land, and you've got a lot of dead people in the Grand Canyon. <laughs> you know, if you can be the first person on a scene to a missing, recovered human being, and then have birds feeding on it, as shallow and grotesque as that might sound, that's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> So um, you could say there's been a handful of people that were guaranteed to have been fed on by birds. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky, and you just heard the voice of Eddie Feltis, former field manager for the California Condor Recovery Program in Arizona and Utah. Today we are digging into our interview archives to explore a particularly bizarre and fascinating question. How can an endangered species recovery program assist in solving a missing persons case? The interviews that you'll be hearing in today's episode were recorded during production for my first film, Scavenger Hunt, an hour-long documentary about California condor recovery and the issue of lead poisoning from spent ammunition. In addition to former Condor Recovery Program field manager Eddie Feltis, you'll also hear from condor field biologist Sean Putz, as well as from myself. I spent four years working as a condor biologist and recorded several self-interviews while working on this film project almost a decade ago. Now, most of the time when we discuss the benefits that saving an endangered species might have on human populations, we're talking about the intrinsic beauty of an animal, or the biological role that that animal plays in an ecosystem. Sometimes we might even delve into the topic of ecosystem services. What benefits does an ecosystem as a whole provide to human communities, and how does this one species help that ecosystem thrive? But today, we're talking about how California condors are able to directly assist law enforcement officers in the recovery of the bodies of people who go missing in Grand Canyon National Park. The California condor is a vulture. It feeds only on the carcasses of dead animals. It finds those dead animals with its extremely keen eyesight. Condors have evolved over millions of years to be extremely proficient at finding dead animals. Their very survival depends on this. So it shouldn't come as a surprise that condors are way better at spotting the body of a missing person within the vast desert landscape of the Grand Canyon than any human ever could be, even with the assistance of a helicopter. But how does this help Park Service law enforcement? Here's where the story begins. I began work as a California condor field biologist in northern Arizona in the fall of 2007. At that time, we knew of rumors about California condors being seen nearby the body of a missing person in the Grand Canyon, but this was unconfirmed and really wasn't on our radar as something to look out for when working in the field. This changed in 2008. 
birds were hanging out over by Trail View 1, the overlook, and I'd had other birds over there before that. And so I just went over there just to see who was there and just to watch behavior and make sure that they didn't get too close to the people. And when I looked below where the birds were, below the overlook, I just noticed the the behavior of them was weird. It was the adults were chasing the younger birds away and it looked like it was a, they were at a feeding site. And there was the dominant birds were pushing the, the younger birds away because there's food and I couldn't see what was going on. And I thought there could, there could be a mule deer that fell off the rim or an elk or a bighorn. But in the back of my mind, I remembered being notified about the, the guy missing. And so I went over to a different ridge and hiked down that ridge to get a better view. And immediately I saw they were feeding on a, on a body. And to me, the first thing I thought was what birds are on it in case he had been doing drugs or, or something. If there was something in his system that, the, that could harm the birds. I wanted to find which ones were there and also notify Park Service, the dispatch. That was Sean Putz, my coworker at the time, describing an experience that falls well outside of the bounds of our training as condor field biologists. It's interesting to note that one of Sean's first instinctive reactions to finding the body was to take measures to ensure the safety and health of the condors. Sean's not the only one who had this type of instinctive reaction upon learning about the presence of condors on a human carcass. I always say when I tell people, um, what's your reaction to it? My first reaction is what was in the person's pockets? <laughs> you know, what are the birds eating? Was this guy a suicidal pill popper? And are the birds, because they will go into pockets first because they are like orifices in the, in the carcass. Um, what was in his pockets? What kind of metal are they eating? Uh, was there a a toxic metal, or is there a ring in his pockets? Is there some kind of prescription drug? That's my first reaction. Yeah. And you know, now with change and, and coins known to kill condors, did he have money in his pockets? You know, Although this type of response may seem bizarre to many, folks need to understand that when you spend virtually every waking hour tracking condors and observing their behavior, you start to see the individual personalities of these birds, and you start to understand just how intelligent they are. Although we tried our best not to anthropomorphize these animals, it was impossible not to care about the health and well-being of each individual bird very deeply. Additionally, when you work as a condor biologist, you spend lots of time around dead animals, and to a certain extent, you become desensitized to the often gruesome scenes of condors pulling apart the rotting flesh of the carcasses that they feed upon. It wasn't strange. It was, I think I was like disconnected. I've seen them feeding on so many dead things that it was just another, another food source, another dead carcass. I, I didn't know the guy. I didn't see him fall, so th that whole part of it, him being dead didn't affect me at all. For documentation, I after calling the park service, it was going to take them a couple minutes to, to get somebody out there. And so I went back to my truck, got my camera, went down and documented what birds were there. We've been told that birds have been near bodies that were being recovered by the search and rescue, but we never had solid documentation. So I wanted that. It's a possible historic food source. And then the 
park service or the rangers got there and i went down and showed them where where it was and they closed off that overlook but it took them a while for the search and rescue team to get organized and i think they have to go through like information like taught told what the issue was and plan for the the whole operation and during that time i was at the overlook and it was open still to the public and i was just watching the birds down there and there were people going out going around the railings out on little points and in my mind i just wanted to tell them that if you fall that birds are feeding on somebody right now that had fallen. The photos of the scene that Sean stumbled across on that day quickly became infamous within the tight-knit circle of folks involved in California condor recovery. It became a common sight to see crowds of biologists hovering over Sean's computer screen at just about every condor recovery team meeting over the next few years. Every condor biologist was anxious to get a glimpse of one of the world's most endangered birds literally feeding upon the animal responsible for its decline. With the photos of the body, everybody asked me, everybody wants a copy, and I just, I don't feel right to have it out, and I've, uh, eventually I'd like to get it in, in archives just so it's documented but I don't want it out and I don't want people profiting off of something like that. The, the birds, scavengers are gonna find whatever is dead and like people fall and they go down into the canyon and they don't take enough water and they get dehydrated and die and it's, they help clean up, clean up the mess. It's now down there, it's, they help the, the rangers and actually find missing people. And that's something I never, before the program, or finding, finding the body, I never would have thought that it could be such a tool. So although this event created quite a stir within the world of California condor biologists, the story received almost no public attention. The only other group, as Sean mentioned, to take a specific interest in this occurrence was Grand Canyon Park Service law enforcement. Yeah, I just got a call yesterday. We have a, not we, but there's a, a suspected jumper from Horseshoe Bend and been missing for about a week now and got a call from the sheriff. Any condor activity? It's become normal. Sure. Yeah, right. And um, I had a call from Grand Canyon Dispatch on somebody that's missing below Mather Point for now three weeks. Uh, I've had one call a week from them following up on any activity. I always email back and say, you know, if I get anything, I'll let you know, but they're still persistent. and then the Coconino County Sheriff yesterday um, called Chris and said, any condor activity? And I had talked to Peggy Kohler, the Lee's Ferry Ranger, two days prior, and she was up looking for that jumper from the river. And I said, hey, if you've got any condor activity up there, I'll let you know. You see, there are a very limited number of condors in the wild. Just about 275 total, but between 70 and 80 individuals can be found in the wild in northern Arizona and southern Utah, and every single one of these birds has either a GPS transmitter or a VHF radio transmitter. So if condors were finding human bodies and condor biologists had the ability to track the location of each of these condors, then law enforcement officers wanted to have a direct line of communication with the condor biologists when engaged in a missing persons case within the range of the condor. During the park's peak visitation period, we began receiving regular calls from Grand Canyon Park Service law enforcement. 
About a dozen or so people go missing in the Grand Canyon each year, and our Condor field crew was often the first to know about each of these occurrences. We were given the location where each person was last seen, and told to report back to law enforcement if we observed any condor behavior that might indicate that the birds had found a carcass within that area. It became a part of our job to check for the presence of condors in these areas whenever there was an active search for a missing person in the canyon. Months went by, and although our crew was involved in numerous missing persons cases, we didn't have another documented occurrence of condors feeding on a human body until one day in June 2009. I was working at the South Rim of the Grand Canyon when I got the call from Eddie, our field manager. Another missing person reported in the canyon. I took down the location, coordinates relevant to the case, and agreed to check for any Condor radio signals in that area later in the day. This was all just part of our normal procedure. That same day, while I was doing a standard signal check, which basically means I was running through all 70 or so distinct radio frequencies associated with the transmitters that are attached to each individual Condor, I was approached with an unusual question. I was approached by this couple who recognized me as uh, someone who works with condors. And they, you know, the, the woman, she walked up to me, she said, uh, you know, she said, hey, do, you, do you work for the Parent Fund? And I was about to go into my whole spiel, you know, you're at the South Rim and you're in tourist mode. So I'm about to go off on my whole condor South Rim spiel. Um, but before I could, she you know, like gives me this really serious look and says, you know, like, I, I want to shake your hand because you're helping me find my father. And I'm just like, uh, whoa. <laughs> okay, that's <laughs> uh, not what I was expecting you to say. <laughs> and for some reason, uh, the law enforcement ranger who was dealing with the family in this case had decided that it was a good idea to tell the family that, that the condor biologists who work for the Peregrine Fund were helping them in the recovery effort. Um, which, I don't know, I mean, I, I guess it's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, but if I'm involved, you know, like, if I, if I find their father, that means he's dead. That was a clip from a self-interview that I did soon after I went through this experience, when the memories of the incident were still fresh in my mind. Before I continue with this story, however, it's worth noting that I'm not the only condor biologist who has been approached by the family of a person gone missing in the Grand Canyon. The more freaky thing that happened was a couple months later, I was down tracking at the South Rim. It was the summer season and a lot of people were around and I just had an old couple come by asking about condors and I told them, if you keep walking down the trail, there's one in plain view and they're like, did you, they asked me, did you know, know the person that found the body? And I'm, I just asked him, oh, you mean, and I, I, I remember his name at the time. And I asked him and said his name and they're like, yeah, that was our son. And that was more strange and freaky than finding the body was meeting and talking to his parents. And they were both in tears at some points and uh there i believe they they wanted closure and i think they were told that by the park service that it was a suicide and they just wanted somebody else's opinion and i just told them that it didn't look like a good spot if you just went out to commit suicide but i uh, it, it could have been i there's there's no way i could tell and 
There was, it was late spring, so there was snow and ice, and he may have just slipped. They took a couple pictures with me, and they were thankful for that I found him. So despite the Grand Canyon's reluctance to publicize the assistance that condors were providing to law enforcement officers, they were clearly sharing this information with the families of the people who had gone missing. A fact that was a bit shocking for me to learn when I was approached by the family of the person who had gone missing in June of 2009. And it wasn't just that one interaction. Over the next couple of days, I was repeatedly approached by family members of this missing person who were very anxious to get any kind of update. For those first couple of days, I didn't really have any updates to share because I wasn't detecting any birds in the area where this person had gone missing. But then things changed. I did start picking up um, signals in this area. I had a group of bears that were circling right near where, where that canyon um, enters the main canyon. Um, and then I had two birds that settled down and roosted down that canyon directly towards the spot where the guy got missing. So, and this was for roost, so it was late in the day, so I wasn't going to hike down then. But I knew that there was a good chance that, that they were down feeding on this guy's body. So that evening, I called my contact at Park Service Law Enforcement, and we made plans to hike down into the canyon early the next morning. Now here, it's important to mention that tracking condors, or any animal, using radio telemetry is anything but a straightforward task. Biologists who do this type of work regularly joke that using telemetry to find animals is an art form. Radio signals can bounce off of cliff walls, and signals can be very deceptive, especially when an animal is moving. On that morning, however, it was surprisingly easy to follow the little blip from the radio transmitters on the three condors that I had circling in that side canyon. I mean, it was very close to the trail, so we hiked down the trail, and then got to the spot where we could cut across on this steep talus slope. And um, as we're doing this, two of the condors land like right in front of us, like a couple, a couple hundred yards in front of us. And, uh, so we're, you know, we're hiking down, um, across the slope, the condors flush and the guy's body is right there, um, on the slope. And it's like on his back, like face up. There was no significant feeding. Um, they were on the carcass when we approached it, but they hadn't broken the skin. Um, but you know, the guy had been dead for, at least a week, seven to ten days. So it was bloated and disgusting, and there had been vomiting involved, and there were maggots and flies coming out of all facial orifices. It was disgusting. So we find the body, and um, then we had to hike back to the trail to grab all their gear, like the body bags and stuff, and all the stuff they needed to, to, to package the body up for removal. And as we walk back to the trail, literally, we just found the body. And one of the guy's sons um, hikes down the trail. And literally, like, we just found his father's body, like, 15 seconds previous. And he comes down, and he didn't know any of the law enforcement officers. um, But he knew me because he'd been talking to me. Um, So he comes down, like... We just see the carcass, and then he comes down the trail, and, you know, he's like, oh, hey, Matt, how's, how's it going? Did, did you guys find anything? He's <laughs> like, I cannot deal with you right now. Uh, you have to talk to one of these people. They're, they're, this is their job. 
the two officers who were in charge of the case, you know, were immediately then, let's walk up, you know, let's walk up the trail and find the rest of your family and then sit down and talk. So I had a moment to sit and digest what was happening while I waited for the law enforcement officers to return from their impromptu meeting with the family a little ways up the trail. I really knew nothing about the procedure involved in the recovery of a human body, but I was about to find out. There were just the four of us, two law enforcement officers and this other guy from Search and Rescue and me. And we, you know, they had to bag the body and, you know, set it up in this sort of net contraption so that the helicopter could come in and they could remove it. And uh, I helped them because uh, I felt like I had to. <laughs> and it was a, kind of a tricky operation because it was a very steep and um, steep talus slope. And the body was like in this position where I was le- like leaning against this boulder that was loose. And we had to, you know, find a stable position and lift the body into the body bag. One of the law enforcement officers almost vomited while we were doing it. The smell, um, yeah, the smell was horrible, but I mean, the smell really wasn't what bothered me. I mean, we spend so much time around dead animals and we're so accustomed to that smell. And it's not any different with a human than it is with a deer or a calf. Um, So that had no effect on me. Um, If anything, it sort of forced that connection in my mind that this is just another carcass. It's not really any different. So... The difficult part was, like, the face and the face being exposed and, like, having to look at, like, you know, the face and, like, this is a human, you know, but the smell was was not the, the, the issue for me. So we successfully bagged the body, then called in for the helicopter. The helicopter arrived with a long rope dangling below it, which one of the officers grabbed and attached to the body bag. Then the body was up in the air, floating through the expanse of the surrounding canyon. As I watched the body disappear from sight, I couldn't help but wonder what this scene might have looked like if it had taken just a few more days for us to find the carcass. Three condors would have quickly become more. Condors feed in social groups, and it's not uncommon to see half the entire Arizona-Utah population feeding at a single carcass. In another two or three days, there wouldn't have been much left of this body. So... After we did all this stuff, the, the, the law enforcement officers wanted me to go to their like, official debriefing meeting for the case. So I went to that after we hiked out of the canyon. And, you know, there was sort of like a, you know, a session. Like the, the guy who was in, in charge of law enforcement so basically had everybody who was involved in the case, which was a lot of people. It was like 15 people, maybe, including myself. And he had everybody go around and, you know, say, like, list one thing that, that went well and one thing that, that they thought could have been improved upon. And this one guy that gets this one law enforcement officer, and he goes off in this whole talk about how, you know, basically, um, like, statistically, if someone is missing in the canyon for, it's, you know, like, more than 48 hours, it's, there's, like, a 100% chance that they're dead, pretty much. And, but they still do the helicopter flights, and they still have searches and they still search for the body as if it were living. And it's like, you know, we must find it because we could save this person's life, even though statistically there's no chance they're still alive. Um, and, you know, you're potentially risking the lives of the people who are doing these searches because you're searching in extremely remote areas and you're doing helicopter flights in the canyon, which is always dangerous. And so this guy was basically saying that 
after you reach that point where there's such a low probability that the person is still alive, why not just wait until the condors find the body? I mean, condors are much better at finding dead people than, than people are, which is, we, which is obvious. We know that. Why not just wait till the condors find the body and then let these people who work for the Paragon Fund find the condors, and so then the job is done, and we're not spending tons of money, and we're not, you know, potentially um, putting more lives in jeopardy for no reason. And it turned into like this sort of this interesting debate as to how do you tell the family that you gave up the search because statistically there's no chance that, that their family member is still alive. And basically what it came down to is you have to do all these things despite the amount of money it costs and despite, you know, the potential risks just to, you know, just to make the family happy, I guess. So as one might imagine, this experience had a lasting effect on me. For one thing, it made me a lot more sensitive to the trauma that families go through when they lose a loved one, especially in such an unexpected and dramatic way. But it also changed the way that I viewed interactions between condors and people. I could now see the relationship between these two species, condors and humans, from the condor's perspective. My boss at the time, Eddie Feltis, explained it this way. You gotta think of the condor. That's that's not, you know, that's just a carcass to them, you know. These birds, you know, A, it's a colorful object that doesn't belong in their setting, colorful by clothes and what they're wearing, which they already will play with, whether it's a plastic bag, a bottle, um, a balloon. And then to have a fleshy carcass draped in this colorful material and to probably have ravens on the ground first, picking at the materials or doing what they do, and they're the first ones on a carcass. It's just another day animal, then. So, although from the condor's perspective, human bodies represent just another food source, from the perspective of most people, they represent a whole lot more. You may notice that I have a distinctive lack of representation from the Park Service itself in this story. This is not for lack of trying. When I was working on my film, Scavenger Hunt, I knew that I wanted to include this strange and potentially shocking connection between condors and people in the film. This is why I recorded all of the interviews that you've been hearing thus far in the podcast episode. I also reached out to my contacts at Grand Canyon National Park, and eventually I was connected with the park's head of public relations. Not only was Grand Canyon National Park unwilling to allow any of its law enforcement staff to speak about this issue on camera but they strongly discouraged me from including this story in my film. Their concern was that this story about how condors assist in the recovery of missing persons would be highly insensitive to the families who have lost their loved ones in the park. Of course, as you know from listening to this story, it was already standard practice for law enforcement officials to tell families of missing persons that condor biologists were assisting in the recovery effort. I believe that the real issue here was a concern about public relations, and how the general public might perceive the involvement of condors and the biologists who track them in the recovery of human bodies from the canyon. Although I did not get a representative from Park Service Law Enforcement to speak with me about this on camera, I did include Sean Putz's story about finding the human body in my film. This was not a decision that I made lightly, and I absolutely did take the strong concerns expressed by the Park Service into consideration. 
I honestly think that what tipped the scale for me and led to my decision to ignore the warning issued by this Park Service PR director was a letter that I received in the mail a few weeks after I assisted in the recovery of the human body. I've held on to this unique letter, and I will read it to you now, with the names omitted. June 09. Matt, my husband and I appreciate what you do, both in work with slash for the Condors and in your assistance of the park rangers. We feel that you played a valuable role in the recovery of my father's remains, something that probably is not in your job description. Thanks. This letter validated my desire to tell this story and to show people this unique connection between condors and humans. This family that I had met and interacted with repeatedly during the search for their father was clearly not offended or upset in any way by my involvement with the case. Quite to the contrary, they were appreciative enough of the role that I played to take the time to write me this thank you letter expressing their gratitude. They were completely able to take a step back from their grief and see the bigger picture. Although this wasn't explicitly expressed in the letter, I do believe that they experienced a shift in attitude very similar to that which I experienced. They started to see humans as functioning members of an ecosystem, rather than just visitors. And that's the value of this story for conservation. It illustrates in a very unique way how humans are truly interconnected with and functioning members of every ecosystem on the planet. When we die in a natural setting, the surrounding organisms view that carcass just like they would the carcass of any other animal, because that's really all we are, just another animal on the landscape. Of course, we happen to be an animal with the ability to shape the surrounding ecosystems in a very dramatic way, but I believe that this recognition of our role as functioning members of the ecosystems that we inhabit is a crucial step towards understanding how we can adopt more sustainable practices across all avenues of our lives. So there it is, a story that has shaped my perception of the natural world. Let me know what you think. Should I have listened to the Park Service and kept this one to myself? Or is there value in this unique connection between us and one of our most endangered bird species? Let me know what you think. Leave a message on the show notes page for this episode or shoot me an email. Those show notes for today's episode can be found at wildlandsinc.org slash 127. If you enjoyed today's episode of the show, you can subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or just about anywhere podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us reach more people with the stories presented in this show, you can leave us an honest rating and review on iTunes. Just search for Eyes on Conservation in the iTunes store or follow the link on the show notes page. The Eyes on Conservation podcast is a production of Wild Lens. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky, with assistance recording my archival self-interview from Julia Feltis. Our theme music is by the humidors.